You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Yeah, so we didn't bring enough books today, but there are a few left, and I'd love to meet you right at the book table afterwards. Um, I'm very passionate about this subject of overcoming depression, and what we're going to do today is give you 11 weapons to defeat the Dark Lord of Depression biblically. So I'm going to cover as much of the Bible as I can in a short amount of time, because it's it, yesterday in Mission Viejo, it was 109 degrees. Like, what happened? What happened to Southern California? It's wild. I love it. I'm having a blast. But um, but because it's hot, I'll try to keep it short. Plus, the mind can only absorb what the seat can endure. So, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And um, during the coronavirus, nearly half of Americans have reported that their mental illness... By the way, Bibles are being passed out. If you need one, just shoot your hand up. Nearly half of Americans... Oh, you were here first service too, weren't you? Harold, what a legend. Good to see you again, my man. Um, nearly half of Americans are reporting that the coronavirus has impacted negatively their mental health and their depression has been exacerbated because of COVID-19. Uh, one Federal Reserve hotline for suicide ideation reported that it had a 1,000% increase of incoming phone calls this April as compared to, compared to last April. So a lot of people are going through through depression right now. And so what I want to do is make a biblical case for hope. And this is something that I'm not just in theoretical world. Like this is something that I've had to live out personally. And I don't want to delve too deeply into this right now. But I do want to tell you that uh, I got diagnosed with complex post-traumatic stress disorder, not even the normal kind, the complex variety, after my brother died and my sister died and my dad's first wife died and I uh, went through romantic heartbreak after an eight-year relationship and I, one of my pastor friends shot himself and uh, I <laughs> literally this week this happened where in Florida I was doing a digital event there and, and a guy flies out to Florida and protested me in the streets and caused a car accident. It was pretty gnarly. But uh, he's been trying to destroy my dad since I was a kid and now he's targeting me. And it's just pretty, you go through stuff sometimes and you're like, gosh, I went through 10 years of suicide ideation over, actually over a decade of chronic depression. And my whole thing is if God could heal my heart, he can heal anybody. Like, if God could give me hope, he can give anybody hope. So if you're struggling with depression today, or if you know, if you have a kid who struggles with depression, please listen to this. Please listen to this message. There is hope. If, however, you're like, I'm doing pretty good. Like, I'm living in sunny San Diego. Carl's bad. Like, I'm doing great. Even still, these weapons will help you to have more joy in your life, more hope in your life, to live a fuller life as well. So this is really for everybody. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, back at my hometown, I'm taking our church verse by verse through the book of Ephesians. And Paul here, he's in warrior mode. Like in this book, he talks about how we're fighting not against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in high places. He argues that we need to take up the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the shield of faith, which can quench every fiery dart of the wicked one, the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of the preparation, of the gospel of peace, fight a good fight, wage a good warfare, go hunt some demons. We don't need to go to people as much to get their pity. We need to go in the presence of the prince of peace because it's there that we get his power. 
power. So my heart is, is that we would go Navy SEAL Team 6, DEFCON 1, MI5, Green Beret, Army Ranger, Paratrooper, Heroic Stoic, Joyful Soldier, Happy Warrior for the Kingdom of God. My heart is that we would be a people who say, we're going to go Chris Kyle, you know, uh, American Sniper, Marcus Luttrell, Lone Survivor, Chad Williams, Seal of God, David Goggins, Can't Hurt Me. We need to have like a warrior mindset. We need to be soldiers because you were not born onto a cruise ship. You were born onto a battleship. And so a lot of my generation are they're like very confused. Like, why isn't this a playground? I've got 10,000 hours of practice in video games, which is true for the average 21-year-old American. So why isn't it a playground? And then we find it's a battleground and we're the most oppressed generation ever, according to sociologists. I don't know who interviewed the 14th century Burgundians, but apparently social media has caused us to be very depressed. And so my heart is, is that you would fight for this thing. Hope is not just this, oh, unicorn shooting rainbows out of their eyes, like puppies frolicking on rainbows. It's just airy, fairy, happy, clappy, wishy-washy, hunky-dory, pie in the sky, fluffy, you know, sunny with hive 75. Maybe I'll have hope one day. That'd be sick, but I don't know. Like, I'm just not predisposed toward hope. My psychological equipment isn't adequate enough, but maybe God will zap it into my heart. No, you have to fight for hope. We have to fight for joy. Hope is a journey. Joy is a choice. And sometimes you have to fight for what you don't feel. Antonio Damasio, a neuroscientist, said that 95% of the time, our feelings decide for us. That is bad news. Would any of you trust a friend that lied to you as much as your emotions do? Would any of us trust a friend that lied to us as much as our feelings do? And yet 95% of the time, this neuroscientist tells us, we opt for going with our feelings. Our 35,000 choices every day, 95% of the time are driven by our feelings. So I want to tell you, we do not walk by feelings. We walk by faith and facts because hope is not hype. This thing's real. If God's been faithful in the past, we're going to be faith-filled about the future. We're going to be fulfilled today and we're going to fight for hope. That was a little diverging rabbit trail, but rabbit trails take you to some nice places sometimes. Ask Alice in Wonderland. Okay, you guys doing okay? Are you guys sleepy? You seem kind of sleepy. Are you awake? First service was awake. Okay, I, I get it. It's, it's, it's stifling, but you know what? I have a sauna in my house. Like, you know those infrared saunas? It's pretty sick. Like, just look at it as a sauna. You're sweating out the impurities right now. So that'll give you a new mindset. I've never said that in a sermon, but yeah. Ephesians 3 verse 14. Okay, Paul's writing here. He says, For this reason, I bow my knees, Ephesians 3 14, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might. Everyone say, strengthened with might. Through his spirit. Say, through his spirit. In the inner man. Say, in the inner man. Ooh, what a phrase. Oh, I want you to be strengthened, Paul says. I'm praying that you'd be strengthened with might by the power of the Spirit in the inner man. He's praying for intestinal fortitude. He's praying for psychological strength. He's praying for spiritual dunamis, dynamite power. Now, 50% of this book, the book of Ephesians, is a prayer. A prayer request, a prayer report, or a prayer itself. It's woven throughout this book. This book has been nicknamed by theologians. Watch this the Swiss Alps of the New Testament. It's also been nicknamed the Grand Canyon of the Bible. And here Paul talks about the unsearchable riches of Christ being manifested to church triumphant in heaven, church militant on earth, heaven and earth where all the family is named. He has destined you, according to Paul's prayer, to be strengthened with might by the power of the Spirit in 
the inner man. Now, did you know that in Ephesians, Paul talks more about demons and angelology and spirituality than any other book per capita in the New Testament? Ephesus was known for worshiping the goddess Artemis, the fertility god of nature. They were known for being very spiritual, just like Southern California. Crystals will help me not get stressed. So many people in LA think. We're a very spiritual culture, but the question is, what spirit are we fighting for? I want to argue that the animating power of the Holy Spirit will strengthen us with might in the inner man when we see him being sent and dispatched by the God of hope. A lot of people think, I can't be strengthened with might in the inner man. I'm too weak. After all, that's what people have told me. That's the judgmental projections upon me. A lot of people think, if you struggle with depression, you're weak. But let me remind you, have you read the Psalms? The psalmist was bipolar. Like, it's just a whiplash when you read the psalms. One minute he's like, one minute he's like, I will praise the Lord on the loud symbols. The next minute the psalmist is like, all your waves and billows have gone over me. One minute he's like, I will hang my harps upon the willow tree next to the rivers of Babylon where our captors forced us to sing. And then the next minute David's dancing in his linen ephod before the Ark of the Covenant, which is to say he was dancing in his undergarments. He was dancing in his underwear. He'd say, okay, that guy's a little bipolar. You know what I mean? So David, David, he had bipolar predispositions. Elijah, after calling down fire, beating the 850 prophets of Baal in the groves in the battle between the deities, you remember that he outran a chariot driven by Jezebel. I love that story. It says that Jezebel painted her face. So she had like way too much makeup on. She was pretty gnarly, like just tons of makeup, driving this chariot, trying to kill. I picture like a female it, you know, like female it clown, just like chasing Elijah. He runs for his life. He outruns a chariot. Then he could face 850 false prophets, but one angry woman sent him running. He's in a cave sitting under a juniper tree and a broom tree, and he asks God to kill him because he says, I'm the only one who doesn't worship Baal. And God's like, actually, there are thousands of people who haven't worshiped Baal. What you need is a good lunch, gave him food. You need a nap, put him to sleep, and you need a good prayer time. And they talk together, and then his depression was solved. By the way, just a little hack right there, spiritual hack. There are very few things a good nap a solid prayer time and a nice meal won't solve. Can I get an amen? Like, soon as like, oh, nobody worships God. God's like, take a nap for crying out loud. <laughs> Elijah struggled with suicidal depression. Jonah, man, Jonah can relate to you right now. Jonah was hot. He was in the desert, Assyrian sun. He was hot. He's like sweating, no doubt. He's, he wants to die because this plant had covered him in shade, but then a worm ate the plant. And he says, God, kill me. God says, why do you say this, Jonah? Jonah says, because my plant died. Now here's a guy, here's a guy who led such an amazing spiritual awakening revival in Assyria, in Nineveh, that even the animals repented. It says the animals were dressed in dust and sack, sackcloth and ashes. When's the last time your, like, bulldog was in ashes and wearing sackcloth and repenting before God? These animals repented. And Jonah, like, what a revivalist. He wanted to die because it was hot. It was hot. He wanted to die. But he was the greatest revivalist of Old Testament history. Job, godliest man in the East. What did he say? I pour myself. I wish I was a stillborn. So what I'm trying to tell you is that depression is not a sign of weakness. Sometimes it's a symptom of strength. Where I take up issue, it's two things happen. 
Depressed people get judged, which we need to take off the stigma taboo of judging people who are depressed. Like we need to stop judging them and love them and love these people. Because even the greatest Bible characters, some of them struggle with depression. On the other hand, it's really hipster to say, oh, I'm just a four on the Enneagram and I'm just really depressed. That's like my nature, bro. I'm like, why would you live with depression when you were called to defeat depression? The psalmist chapter 42 verse 5 didn't say, why are you cast down on my soul? Keep it up. He said, why are you cast down on my soul? Hope in God. Which of you, if you had a treatable disease, would go to the doctor and say, oh, doc, I'm just learning to live with it. Why would you live with it? You are called to defeat it, to cure it. So too, we have medical scientists trying to cure cancer. We have social activists trying to cure HIV. We need sacred optimists who are going to cure the disease of suicide because in 2017, suicide was the second leading cause of death in my age group. People are talking about the coronavirus killing more people than have died in all the Vietnam War combined in America. In fact, more people have died the past four months than any four-month period in American history. But what people fail to realize is once every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide. So we also need not only Anthony Fauci, we not only need like Sputnik 5 from Russia, we not only need a vaccine or whatever you might think about that. I'm not getting into that. We need a cure for depression. And I believe I found it. Do you want to know why I live on airplanes and stuff? Because I believe I found it. Like, this is the eureka moment for me when I'm sharing with you the 11 weapons, and we're going to go very brief through each one, to defeat depression. Are you guys ready for this? So if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not, feel judged by those who are. Okay, here we go. (laughs) Joking, joking. But all of us know that 99% of people who take notes make it into heaven after they die. So... Joking again, I'm not serious. Okay, 11 things. If you want to write it down, great. If you want to just hide it in your heart, that's wonderful too. Number one, prayer walks. Would everyone say prayer walks? This is huge. This helped me defeat depression. I'm just going to get real practical with you. Prayer walks. Did you know the Bible never says you're supposed to fold your hands and close your eyes when you pray? I, I think we made it up because kids get squirrely, so we're like, close your eyes, fold your hands. The Bible doesn't say we're supposed to do that ever, not once. But... The Bible does talk a lot about walking. God walked with Adam in the cool of the day. God told Abraham, walk before me. Enoch walked with God, was translated up. Paul says in Ephesians, walk worthy of the calling you've received. Again, we walk by faith, Hebrews says, not by sight. And as we're strengthened with might by the power of the Spirit in the inner man, what my heart for you is that you would understand when Paul was praying, notice he's praying. That's what he's doing. I'm praying. I'm bowing my knees before you, God, to ask that the church of Ephesus would be strengthened with might by the power of the Spirit in the inner man. Some archaeologists believe they have found, follow with me, they found Paul's prison cell. It's in Rome, a hole in the ground where prisoners would be stacked on top of one another and they would be separated by grates. We're not talking post-Johnny Cash civil prison reform, watch ESPN and lift weights waiting for parole in prison. We're talking about guys stacked on top of each other with no sanitation like we know it today at least, no running water, no hot food. And the guy, I'm not trying to be crude here, but you got to understand what Paul's going through. The guy on the top, you're stacked on top of each other. When he goes to the bathroom, what happens if you're on the bottom? I mean, this is unsanitary, ancient, horrific conditions. And yet somehow in prison, Paul manages to get on his knees. He's writing this from prison and he's saying, I beg my God and father that he would grant you through the unsearchable riches of Christ with the whole family, triumphant, militant, heaven, earth that is named, that you would be strengthened with might by the power of the spirit in the inner man. Paul believed that we were strengthened through prayer. And that's what I found in my life. This is number one, prayer walks. Go on a walk. Go on a walk. 
Walk. God told Abraham, walk before me. You know what's amazing? Science has shown that when you talk to God, when you pray, if you talk intentionally to a God of love, your frontal lobe in your brain activates into its highest intellectual capacity and you boost your brain intelligence through praying. In fact, if you pray to a loving God, you develop richer, thicker gray matter in your prefrontal cortex, which is the area of your brain where creative thinking is located. You have more blood flow to your interior cingulate cortex where you have empathy and compassion because it's hard to put someone on your hit list who you put on your prayer list. You also have less uh, activity and blood flow to your amygdala, which is the rat brain where fear, anger, stress, high blood pressure are located. So when you pray, you lower your blood pressure, you create an empathic bond, you have better creative thinking in your prefrontal cortex if you talk to a loving God. This is called neural plasticity. You can reform the presynaptic and postsynaptic neurons and the synapses and the cranial package and psychological constitution and cerebral three-pound gray matter. You can change your brain. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You can take your thoughts captive. Friends, this is magnetic resonance imaging. We're talking MRIs, CAT scans. We're talking like the people, the people have been brain scanned when they're praying to a loving God and you can actually fix your brain that way. Wow pretty sick. And you know what? When you talk to God, be honest. Scientific research has shown us that if you talk to God about your hopes, fears, and dreams, it has the same effect on your brain as therapy. How sick is that? And guess what? The therapy's free. He's a wonderful counselor, Isaiah says. So you're like, oh man, if I fork over $150, by the way, thank God for good therapists, but you never know. Because if you fork over $150, is it going to be like Freudian Oedipus complex, Jungian dream analysis, Adlerian power grabs, Frankel's logotherapy, ADD, SAD, ADHD, ODD. I guess I'm odd. Like, who knows? But when you talk to God, you know that he's a wonderful counselor. His therapy's free. You cast your cares on him. He cares for you. And this will fix your brain. And you can even gossip to him. God's not like, oh my gosh, I can't believe she said that about you. I never knew. What a juicy deed. I look at her different now. You can be honest to God. Jesus said, I don't call you servants. I call you friends. The Old Testament says God spoke to Moses. Moses spoke to God face to face and mouth mouth to mouth. He's FaceTiming God basically, spiritually. Calling on him and the Lord answered. This is hugely healing. Are you tracking with me? So, are you tracking with me, anybody? Okay, so this is, the, this is what Paul's doing. He's praying that we'd be strengthened. Number two. Second thing. This is a big one. Scripture scholar scuba gear. I want to start a, I'll say that again. Scripture scholar scuba gear. We're going to put on our Navy SEAL tank here and we're going to go deep. I want to start a pillow embroidery company with pink pillows and a lot of fluff and a lot of lace. And I want to put on these pillows like uh, the verses that nobody ever quotes. So you know, it's like, oh, he works all things together for the good. Like he has a future and a hope. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God so loved the world. Wonderful verses and totally true. You know how those are like on pillows and stuff? I want to start a pillow embroidery company where I say, where it's like in quotes, are you still so dull? It's like, who said that? Jesus. Or like another one when he's talking to Pharisees. He's like, your father's the devil. Wouldn't that be a great pillow? Your father is the devil. It's like, who said that? Jesus. Anyway, what I've tried to he was talking to Pharisees, but basically another one, he's like, you go across land and sea to make converts who turn into twice as much sons of hell as yourself. Wouldn't that be a great pillow? Anyway, what I'm saying is there are so many scriptures people don't know about that give us hope. Let me just give you one example. You know, the Bible says, Romans 15, 4, the scriptures were written to give us hope. 
There's so many connections. If you'll get out of the depths of the slew of despond and you'll start to go into the deeps of spiritual scripture, if you go deep, not just jet skiing on the surface of the Bible, but like really going deep, you find all these gnarly connections. Like there's this one story of David when he conquered Jerusalem. It was called Jebus. And the Jebusites said, even the lame and blind could stop you. Nevertheless, David conquered it and renamed it Jerusalem. That's why we call it the city of David. Then fast forward to Jesus, the son of David. He goes into Jerusalem, only does two miracles before his arrest. Does anybody remember what those two miracles were? He healed the lame at the pool of Bethesda and the blind at the pool of Siloam. Healed the lame and the blind. Why? Because what did the inhabitants of Jerusalem say to David? Even the lame and blind could stop you. Nevertheless, he conquered it militarily. So the son of David comes in. He heals the lame and the blind because they could not stop his healing ministry. And he was showing, I'm the Messiah. I'm the heir to the throne. I'm the son of David. Remember the whole lame and blind thing? Wow. If you're willing to go a little deeper, you start to see all these beautiful connections. And if you'll not just skim off the surface, but plumb the depths, you'll find tremendous hope that will distract you from living in your head and getting you out of your head and into the book. Number three, you guys doing okay so far? The magic number of greatness. Number three, the magic number of greatness. Now this phrase is taken from Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers. Have you guys ever heard of this? This was huge in getting me out of depression. If you want to be strengthened with might in the inner man, here's what you have to know. The magic number of greatness refers to the 10,000 hour rule. And Gladwell postulates through his studies that the psychologist John Hayes does this too. Anybody who masters a craft, craft has to practice four hours a day, five days a week for 10 years or eight hours a day, five days a week for five years. But you basically have to get in 10,000 hours of practice. And what he found is, like the Beatles, for example, everyone thinks, oh, they're just the it factor, X factor, Liverpool boys, Ed Sullivan show, British invasion. They just come to America, Candlestick Park, San Francisco. They just take the world by storm because they're charming. What people don't know is that before the Beatles ever came to America, they played more live shows than most bands do in their entire career before they ever brought in the British invasion to America. So one biographer says they, they used to be terrible, actually. But what they did is they went to Hamburg, Germany, and they played at this rundown club seven days a week for eight hours a night. Could you imagine playing shows eight hours a night, seven days a week? Probably felt like eight days a week. You'll only get that if you're over 50. But basically, man, these guys worked hard. In the same way, if you see people who are excellent at their craft, it's because if they're world-class, they have to get in those 10,000 hours. So the Bible often talks about hard work. Listen, one of the things God's showing me, this is actually in a Jimmy Carter speech, that we have to stop crying and start sweating. Everyone say, stop crying. Start sweating. And you're doing it right now. So am I. We're all doing it right now. But seriously, instead of thinking about your depression, put your hand to the plow and work, ply your trade, work your craft. What, what, honestly, this was one of the things that saved me. I had these several timers and I clocked in 11,073 hours and five years into my craft and I just read books and studied and preached and wrote. And that was huge in getting me out of depression. Here's what the Bible says. Work hard and become a leader. Be lazy and become a slave. Again, the book of Proverbs says, hard work means prosperity. Only fools idle away their time. Again, Ecclesiastes says, whatever you put your hand to, do it with all your might. Again, Paul says, 
whatever you do, do as unto the Lord. Again, the book of Genesis says that God called Adam and Eve to be gardeners to work their craft before they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, before original sin was original blessing. So many people have a bad theology of work. They think when they go to their nine to five job, that's the curse. Oh, we were just cursed, descendants of Adam and Eve. No, friends, before original sin was original blessing. And if you look at your work as a curse, you're going to be depressed 40 hours out of the week. And that's a lot of time to be depressed. You have to realize that God called Adam and Eve to be a gardener, gardeners, that vocation, before the quote-unquote fall. The curse was that they would have to pluck up weeds and sweat. That was the curse, the toil, the travail. But work itself was a blessing. And by the way, little freebie for you, Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. That was the curse. Jesus is called the last Adam who went back into a garden, worked by the sweat of his brow when he bled from his brow. He, He sweat great drops of blood in a garden to reverse the curse and redeem mankind's work because Adam means mankind. Adam means man. So Adam was expelled from the garden to work by the sweat of his brow. So Jesus, the last Adam, goes back into a garden, bleeds from the sweat of his brow. He sweat great drops of blood to reverse the curse and redeem man's work. What I'm saying is, theologically, your work matters. Number four. You guys doing okay? Endorphins. Everyone say endorphins. Here's a real practical one. So I end up, I live in Oregon. I end up in California almost every week. And I, uh, right now, this is, this is huge. I'm going to share with you this, this. This is something huge for me. I have a friend named Chad Williams. You might know him. He SEAL Team 1, SEAL Team 7. And he puts me through SEAL training when I'm here. And one of the reasons that's so good for me is because a lot of people struggle with depression. They cut themselves because they're trying to do transference and sublimation. They're trying to distract their mind from pain by inflicting pain in their body. And I'm all for inflicting pain in your body, just not through cutting, do it through exercise. Because then you're actually doing something advantageous and you're distracting your mind from the pain. In the Bible, Paul often talks about athletics. So in Ephesus, you had the Panionian Games. Uh, Then again in... Uh, watch this, Athens, you had the Olympic Games, Corinth, you had the Asminian Games. So Paul talks about running. He talks about boxing. He talks about the mastery. He talks about wrestling. Paul like talked a lot about sports. So too, Jesus, he was a physical specimen. I I think so. And here's why. Because when he pulled Peter out of the water in Matthew 14, do you know how hard that would be? History tells us Peter was a big guy. You don't just curl a 200-pound man if you're a weakling. I mean, he was a strong man. In fact, he was a carpenter, probably. We don't know for sure. He probably was. And his stepdad, Joseph, scholars believe, worked in Sephora, four miles from Nazareth, which dealt with stone masonry and wood. So here's Jesus who dealt with stone and wood. In fact, So picture calloused hands, stone and wood, curling Peter. In fact, watch this. When he was scourged with lashes, that should have killed him. But after that, not only did he survive, he picked up a cross and carried it up a hill until he literally collapsed under it and had to have help. Like he went until he couldn't push it anymore. Do you know how heavy that cross was? It was 150 pounds of recycled timber with the blood and sweat of previous victims recycled onto it. I mean, he's a tough guy. And honestly, I don't mean to offend the snowflake generation, but I get helped by people yelling at me. Like, I like when seals yell at me and, and like really push me. Can I, can I push you? Here's the thing. Scientific research has shown us that when you push your body to its limits, just like Jesus did when he was in a desert for 40 days, how would you like to hike through a desert for 40 days with no food? 
And that's when he chose to be, well, Jesus, turning down the archetypal temptations of physical lust, turn these rocks and loaves of bread, power, ill-gotten gains, jumping off the temple, showing off, caught by angels, turns all that down, chooses to be Jesus when? When he was pushing his body to its limits, fasting for 40 days, hiking in a desert. In the same way, God made you, he made your body in such a way that when you exercise, science shows us that going on a 40-minute jog has the same effect on your brain as an antidepressant. So after you exercise, you know the cobwebs start to go away and you just feel a little more mentally clear? That's because God put chemicals in your body called endorphins. Now these activate opioid receptors in your brain, which are akin to the drug morphine, and they act as natural painkillers. So you have natural painkillers in your body when you push your body to its limits. Isn't that sick? Number five. We're going to keep going. I'm trying to finish quick. Number five, rewrite your story. Rewrite your story. Weapon number five, rewrite your story. By the way, I'm covering like a big portion of the book today, but here it is. Rewrite your story. Israel, as a baby nation, track with me, was taken to Egypt, passed through water, the Red Sea, to wander in a wilderness for 40 years. Jesus as a baby, is taken to Egypt, passes through water, the Jordan River, to wander in a wilderness for 40 days. Who wrote these parallels? Both Jesus and Israel were in Egypt as infants, passed through water, and wandered in a wilderness for 40 days slash 40 years. Who wrote these parallels? Matthew. Who was Matthew writing to? Israel, Jewish people. Who were the Jewish people? They were slaves, essentially and effectively, subjugated as second-class citizens to the Roman Empire. They had lost the plot. Was there any hope? They were waiting for the Mashiach, the Christos. So what happens? Jesus comes in and rewrites their whole narrative. That's why these parallels are drawn. The Bible says he is the author of our faith, and Psalm 139 says all our days are written in his book. Spoiler alert, there's a happily ever after. How much more courageous would you be if you knew the end of your story, Revelation, all tears will be wiped off your face, your faces? You'd have a lot more hope in the middle of the plot. Number six. Number six. Own your oddness. Everyone say, own your oddness. There's this story in the Bible of a king named Eglon. Now, Eglon, it says, was a very fat man. If the Bible says you are a very, if it's using the adverb very, and then the noun fat, we're talking about a really big guy, a big guy, had his own zip code. We're talking like the body's a temple. Sometimes you add additions. We're talking job of the hut here. Here's a, here's a big guy. He's oppressing Israel for 18 years, wicked king of Moab. What happens? Ehud sneaks in to Eglon's presence, stabs him with a dagger. The dagger, it says, disappears in the fat. So it like got swallowed up by the cellulite. And then he not only killed this wicked king who was oppressing Moab, uh, Israel as the king of Moab for 18 years, he goes on to wipe out 10,000 lusty men of, of Moab and frees Israel from bondage. What a lot of people don't remember is that this character Ehud was left-handed. Now Ehud was from the tribe of Benjamin. There were only three left-handed people mentioned in the Bible, and they all come from the tribe of Benjamin. Does anybody know what Benjamin means? Son of my right hand. So all the left-handers come from the right-handed tribe. Not only did that make them odd, but they were considered cursed. Nowadays, if you're a lefty, it's like a good thing. You have a better chance at playing in the major leagues as a first baseman. Uh, Six of the last 13 presidents since World War II were left-handed, so you have better chances statistically, politically. 
But back in the day, if you had a left hand, you were considered cursed if that was your dominant hand. But because the TSA of the ancient palace guard security in that time, according to historicity, would often frisk the left side of your body, Ehud was able to sneak in without his dagger being detected by the metal detector, as it were. What do you mean? If you're right-handed and you have, you're wielding a sword, like where are you going to pull your sword from? Your left hip, you draw it across your body. But because Ehud was a southpaw, where would his dagger be? On his opposite hip, the right side. So they would have frisked his, frisked his left hip, but because his sword was on his right side, he could sneak in unnoticed. In other words, his curse became his blessing. His oddity became his commodity. When I am weak, Paul said, then am I strong. For so many years, I had cognitive dissonance of projecting an avatar and persona to the world that wasn't who I was. I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to be like this super somber, serious, sober, sane, and I tried to like act all wise and serious. And then I'm like, no, I love skateboarding. I started skateboarding and got a lot happier. Friends, be who God made you to be. You will be so depressed otherwise. Oh, why did God make me like this? Why am I left-handed? Maybe it's because you're going to be the greatest military assassin in Old Testament history. So just hang in there. It'll make sense later. Number seven, friend ventures. Everyone say friend ventures. In the book of Daniel... We're told that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had an excellent spirit. We're also told that Daniel had an excellent spirit. Why? Because they hung out with each other. What does that mean? Spirits are transferable. Proverbs says, if you walk with the wise, you'll become wise. The Bible says, it's not good for a man to be alone. Proverbs says, a friend loves at all times. So if you show me the five people you hang out with the most, I'll tell you exactly who you're going to be. You're going to be the median average of them. We become like who we're around. If you want an excellent spirit, hang out with people with an excellent spirit. You know who I hang out with? People who are sendy, people who skate, people who are joyful, people who are hopeful, people who are lumps of sunshine. That's who I get around. And that makes all the difference on me. Friends, I think a lot of times we get in the wrong relationships. We're in relationships with people who drag us down and pull us into depression. We want to reach out to them. We want to love on them. We want to bestow hope upon them. We want to endow them with sacred optimism. But ultimately, when we're choosing our friends, remember that who we choose to spend our time with will determine the shaping of our very identity. So for me, it wasn't a matter of more existential, ontological, navel-gazing, philosophizing of metaphysical epistemology. I didn't need any more of that. You know what I needed? Some crazy friends who after I went through PTSD, and in the middle of it even, grabbed their skateboards, and they showed me life can be good again. Like, sometimes you just need some crazy friend. Not, you, sometimes you don't need more deep coffee conversations. You need to go send it. You need to go have fun. You need to go on adventures with God and squad. Can I get an amen? If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Number eight, heaven. Heaven. Everyone say Heaven. Paul said, if we do not believe in the resurrection from the dead, we above all men are most miserable. Do you want to find out the quickest way to be the most miserable person? Do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. Thank God the message of the gospel is that the center of the universe screams forth this wonderful good news that the tomb is empty. When I was sitting at my brother's deathbed, it's no longer a theory or theology to me. It's like, what do I believe? 
when my sister died, it's not just, oh, what do I think doctrinally? It's like, oh my gosh, like, what do I believe? If I didn't believe in the afterlife, I would be the most miserable person. But when your loved ones die, when you face death, you got to put wheels on this thing. Do you believe in the afterlife? I do. Do you believe in it? Do you really believe in the afterlife? Because here's what Ecclesiastes 3.11 says. He has put eternity in our hearts. Did you know science validates this? And this maintains majority support that all over the world, people believe in an afterlife. Even in regions where belief in God remains relatively low, people tend to believe in some persistence of consciousness after death or some form of the afterlife. Why? God hardwired eternity in our hearts. Jesus put it beautifully. Whoever believes on him who had sent me has passed from death into life. Number nine. As we strengthen you with might by the power of the spirit and the inner man, El Roy. Everyone say El Roy. The first time a character nicknamed God in the Bible, her name was Hagar. She was an Egyptian slave girl who was dying in a desert. God rescued her. Her name was Hagar. She said, you are El Roy, the God who sees. Why do people cut themselves? Why do people threaten suicide? Some people criticize them and say, oh, it's just because they want attention. So what if they do? Like, what if they just want to be seen, known and heard? Like, that's not cause for judgment. That's cause for more empathy and compassion. A lot of times you go through depression. This is what I went through where I'm like, no one gets me. Nobody sees Nobody understands. But guess what? God does. He is El Roy, the God who sees. He gets you. He vibes with you. He understands you. In fact, he made you. El Roy, the God who sees. Number 10, our last two. Number 10, let God love on you. Ooh, this is a good one. Let God love on you. Because we live in a capitalistic, consumeristic, free enterprise, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, upward mobility, socioeconomic society, we think we have to earn our keep and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But really, friends, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's not a republic. It's not a monarchy. It's not an oligarchy. It's not an autocracy. It's not a tyranny. It's a theocracy where the kingdom comes to earth as perfectly as it is in heaven by grace, through faith, in hope, not of works. That's Ephesians, Romans, and Jesus' prayer combined. Basically, what I'm telling you is this. You don't have to earn the king's love. Just sit back, relax, let him love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you. I don't know about you, but I get worried about a lot of stuff way too frequently. I mean, I'll be, I'm a vegetarian now, but back in the day I'd eat bacon and I'm like, oh no, God, there's a hair in my food. God's like, Ben, you're eating bacon. There's a pig in your food. And that's what you're worried about. I'm OCD. Actually, I'm CDO. It's like OCD, but the letters are in alphabetical order like they're supposed to be. You follow me there? So don't be sad because sad spelled backwards is das and das not good. Basically, seeing if you're still awake, five times Jesus said, don't worry. Why? Because the only thing worry changes is your blood pressure. We're so worried. George MacDonald, this sagely theological philosopher said, We fetch tomorrow with our thoughts and redouble our vexation. Friends, our problem is not what's happening right now. Our problem is what we're worried about is going to happen next. Live 
present to the moment. Give no, Jesus literally said, give no thought for tomorrow. When's the last time you obeyed that? Just stop thinking about it. No, no, no Proverbs says to plan. Don't misunderstand me and leave an inheritance for your children. I understand that. But let's really listen to what Jesus is arguing for. Just don't take any thought for tomorrow. The word is merimnan for thought in Greek. It means to tear apart. We're torn apart. We're ripped apart when we're worried about the future. So how do you get rid of worry, fear, and anxiety? What does the Bible say? God is love. Perfect love casts out fear. There is no fear in love. What do you have to do? Just let God love on you. Let him love on you. I remember I was taught this by my friend Cameron. He and his girlfriend, we were all at these waterfalls that were white like moonlight on snow and the stars were like spangles sprinkling, uh, sprinkled across the interstellar void of velvet space. It was very gorgeous, very beautiful. And Cameron was teaching me, Ben, I, like, you need to learn how to let God love on you. Just don't do anything. Just don't do anything. Just sit there and don't do anything. Just let him love on you. So we sat next to these waterfalls for a period of time and just let God love on us. Didn't do anything. Just let him love on us. I felt so peaceful that right after this happened, we walked back to shore and this scorpion jumped on me. And scorpions, I've read about them. They're excruciatingly painful when they sting you. Like they're, they, they, they can be a crucible of agony. It can even be lethal. I've studied these things and I'm like, oh no, this, this scorpion jumped on me. I look over at Cameron and he looks at me and I could read the message clear as day in his eyes. It was the verse where Jesus said, if you take up snakes, they will not harm you if they bite you. If you drink a poisonous cup, you will survive. And so I, he looked at me and he had this message in his eyes. You just wipe it off, shake it off. So I brushed it off and I was totally fine. Totally fine. I lived. I'm here. I survived. The scorpion didn't bite me or sting me or whatever it is that scorpions like to do. They like to sting. Why? Because perfect love casts out fear. I just felt calm, shalom. If you're frenetic, stressed, anxious, sit there, do nothing. Let God love the heavens right into you and the despair clean out of you because perfect love casts out fear. Number 11, finally, dreamality. Everyone say dreamality. If you have a a calling on your life, that you don't obey, this is probably the main thing that made me depressed. I had these dreams and these callings in my heart and people told me they were crazy, so I just got really depressed. I tried to deny them. Here's the problem. Paul said, I have not been disobedient to the heavenly vision. Acts says, young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams. Again, the Bible says, uh, Psalm 20, may the Lord grant you your heart's desire. Psalm 21, 2. The Lord has granted me my heart's desire. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord. He gives you the desires of your heart. Psalm 145, 19, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. Again, Psalm says that he satisfies the desire of every living thing. Again, Proverbs 10, 24, the desire of the righteous will be granted. Proverbs also says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. But when the desire comes, it says a tree of life. What is the dream, the calling, the gift that God put in your heart? Do not deny that. When you walk with him and your heart's regenerated, he writes his laws on the table of your heart. So follow what he puts there. Follow what he puts there. Friends, there it is. We have 11 weapons to defeat the dark lord of depression. 
We are going to go ham on the enemy. The enemy's not going to know what hit him. We are going to be an army strengthened with power by the might of the Holy Spirit in the inner man. And we are going to put to flight the forces of darkness. We were destined to be super, superlative, more than conquerors, over overcomers through God in whom we live, move, and have our being. We were empowered, enabled, ennobled, and equipped to go on this venture and to embark on this hero's journey of fighting for hope. And guess what? We're going to win our generation back from suicide to the God of hope. Can I get an amen? This is big stuff. This is big. Let's pray. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.